Hey, hey, hey. This is Lisa A. And you're listening to Who's That Star on LCC Connect at Lansing Community College. Who's That Star is a behind-the-scenes show where I sit down and talk with the employees at the college. This is an inside look at LCC where you will have a chance to learn about their passions, projects, what inspires them both at work and in their personal lives. I'm your host, Lisa Alexander. I'm so excited to get a chance to talk to all the people who make LCC great. This show is for you to get to know the people that work at Lansing Community College a little bit more and see what makes them tick. Are you ready? Okay, let's go see who's today's star. On Who's That Star today, we have someone that has been in their career field for over 46 years. He is a native of northwestern Pennsylvania. He's a fan of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Can't wait to find out how he decided to come to Michigan. He holds a bachelor's degree in industrial administration from General Motors Institute, GMI, now called Kettering University, and an MBA from Youngstown State University. He has worked in both the public and private sector with assignments as personnel director of the General Motors Lansing Stamping Plant, central office assignments in Lansing and Detroit. He also worked labor relation assignments at assembly plants in Linden, New Jersey, and Kansas City, Missouri. He has been a member of Lansing Community College family, I think, for about 14 years. And he's held, I think, two different leadership roles, but we're going to find out more about that shortly. He's a member of the Michigan Public Employer Labor Relations Association Boards of Director, and he currently serves as board president. He's also a member of Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity Lansing Alumni Chapter, serving many roles in that organization. Not only that, he does other volunteering in the Lansing community. All right, everybody. Are you excited to find out who's today's star? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome James A. Mitchell to the show. We are so happy to have you here today, James. Well, thank you, Lisa. I am uh, uh, great. I feel great about being here, and I appreciate the invitation and look forward to the conversation. Me too. It's exciting because I had an opportunity I met your wife before you. I knew your wife because she worked at the Lansing School District as a school social worker, and I was a school social worker. So it was a really, it was a trip when I found out that that's who your wife was. I was like, oh, wow, great to know that. But I want to find out about you today. So I want to know, like, can you tell me more about what you do here at LCC? Sure. I currently have the privilege of serving as the executive director of Human Resources, which means I have the privilege of uh, working with the uh, staff and leading the staff there uh, in areas uh, including uh, compensation, benefits, employment, uh, labor relations, and organizational uh, development are the primary ones. So I get to see kind of both sides of it, of it uh, because human resources are kind of the labor relations is one side dealing with employees, dealing with our, uh, with our unions, uh, which I enjoy, and then is also dealing with the leadership group in a lot of uh, ways on the other side, in the, on the employment side. Uh, so it's, it's just a fantastic opportunity. I really enjoy it. I really enjoy serving at the, at, at the college. Yeah, so as an executive director, I was thinking that you really didn't get your hands muddy, per se. Like, you would be over everybody, but you do get an opportunity to play different roles, like, in the labor relations. Like, you would be there at the table, or, like, are you an advisor? I'm not really uh, understand, like, what that role yeah. is. Well, yeah, as far as uh, labor relations goes, I mean, that was my previous role. I had that. I was the uh, labor relations and employee uh, relations director for like 12 years. Okay. And that's the longest time I've, I've ever held any job. Okay. So I was really involved in the uh, collective bargaining process. And I still am, uh, since I enjoy that so much. Uh, we, we have a great staff, but I am involved in the uh, negotiations 
I was involved in the uh, bargaining of the last contracts. Okay. Uh, and then uh, in the administration, I, I, I'm not really into the day-to-day uh, items, mm-hmm. but, but I am involved in it. I do meet with our uh, labor leaders on a regular basis. Uh, so I'm involved in that way. Uh, then in the compensation and, um, and, and employment side, uh, I do get involved in the uh, uh, vacancy management process okay. and the budget process. So I, I do still have the privilege of interacting with employees at, at, at all levels. I do receive the uh, notices of employees who are going to uh, 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 retire, okay. et cetera, and I do interact with them. Uh, but it, it is uh, a leadership role, but I, uh, I see my role as trying to put the staff, and, and, and there's a great HR staff, just wonderful mm-hmm. uh, women and, and men, to try to put them in a position to, to be successful, mm-hmm. to support them, and to make sure they have what they need, because they're, they're a, really a fantastic staff who they all know what their roles are, mm-hmm. and and they're very good at it. Okay, great. So I I heard that you mentioned that you had did a, a previous position before the executive director. And what right. was that again? That was the uh, director of labor relations and employee relations. Okay, so when you got to LCC, you were in the private sector? Yes, I was. What made you transition from private to public? Well, it was primarily the, uh, the economy, Lisa. Mm-hmm. Around 2008, you may recall. <laughs> I do. <laughs> there was a lot of things going on in the economy. General Motors was really struggling. Mm-hmm. I'd been with General Motors my entire uh, uh, career. The I had been the, the uh, personnel director, as you mentioned in the beginning, at the stamping plant. It was called Plant 3 here, mm-hmm. but that plant closed. So I had a couple assignments down at the global uh global headquarters at the Renaissance Center. Okay. And, uh, you know, things were going south for General Motors uh, economically. Right. And they offered, uh, they offered early uh, uh, retirements. Hey. So I thought I considered that. But while I was considering it, I uh, was looking for, for other opportunities so I reached out to some contacts that that I had. Uh, there was one of my uh, uh, one of my uh, fraternity brothers, George Blockett, who mm-hmm. did a lot of employment placement, and I called him up, and he said, "Well, there's this position at LCC that's uh, that's open, and I think you might be perfect for it." Mm-hmm. So I followed through, and kind of the rest is it's history. Is history, huh? and I. I have, you know, I've really enjoyed my uh, opportunity to be a public servant here at the college. What do you like most about it? I really like the uh, the people, the staff, the the, the great colleagues uh, in in all areas. I mentioned the HR staff, uh, the uh, the uh, union colleagues. Uh, the employees. Uh, I really enjoy, you know, serving, trying to solve problems, put processes in place. So I really enjoy those those interactions. But then I also recognize that we're here to educate students. Mm-hmm. And while I don't have a direct role in it, I look at my role as helping others or putting others in a position so they can uh, perform that work. And one of my favorite things here is the uh, graduation ceremonies. Yeah. I mean, fun. it's so exciting to see those those uh, uh, young people graduate and their parents and, and they're so excited. And, you know, frequently, uh, you know, I've been in Lansing since 19, 
89, so I and I have a lot of contacts, but to see uh, children that I know, and they're not children anymore, graduating, mm-hmm. uh, members of my church, uh, or other, you know, just folks that I know through uh, through Jack and Jill and Phi Beta Sigma, but to see those individuals graduate, mm-hmm. it's, it's just so exciting. It is, and yeah. you've been around a long time, so you've probably seen, like, uh, the children of children, maybe now. Are you getting there yet? Have you seen uh, that? I don't think I can claim that yet. Well, yeah, because yeah, yeah. you're doing more of, uh, you know, the administrative aspect. I get to see yeah. people's kids, and now okay, yeah. the kids is coming. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. But I'm not that old, so uh-huh. I don't know how that's happening. But um, I wanted to know, James, like, what's the career highlight you are most proud of? Wow. Uh, I would say uh, here at the at the college, uh, in the area of uh, of uh, labor uh, relations, I would say the uh, uh, the uh, resolution of of our contracts and the improving our the uh, the climate here. Mm-hmm. When I first started here, we had, I don't know, like 40 grievances and things were not that well as far as how HR and, and labor interacted with the uh, unions. So I think that's improved. Mm-hmm. I know there was a long stretch. Uh, this is when uh, when I was in my, my former role. We went for over a year with uh, with zero grievances. Mm-mm. Now that's kind of picked up a little bit, and the pandemics have had an effect on it. But just th- just that, and uh, also recently over the last couple of bargaining cycles, we started to use the interest based bargaining approach, mm-hmm. which is really a, a collaborative approach. And before that, it was more of a uh, of a uh, traditional approach mm-hmm. where we had uh, a tur- an attorney at the table, very chief spokesman, and that's what I was used to in the public sector. But we moved uh, we moved a- away with that with the IBB, and we have it is a uh, facilitated process, mm-hmm. and we're able to uh, reach our. Uh, our agreements in a much more uh, open fashion. Mm-hmm. It's it's more it's it's like a team. Yeah. And as you go through the process, it's really interesting that as you go through the process and you have discussions at the at the table, uh, contrary to the to the uh, traditional approach where you have a chief spokesman and you're very structured and only the chief spokesman speaks. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, everybody can speak. And it, it gets to the point where as, as, as you go through long, so long through the process, uh, it, it's not unusual for uh, individuals on the same side, either on the college or on the union side, not to agree with each other. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. It's more of a... Of, of a kind of a buffet of ideas and, and interactions, and it's just a lot more positive. So that's what I would say. Those, um, those improvements in the area of, of, of our labor uh, processes, I think, are the, what I would say. I, I don't proud isn't the right word, but I think I've been fortunate to be part of it and see that change. I mean, and I think too that you know, in the position that you're in, to want that like collaboration and to want yeah. to hear more voices, right? Sure. That's a great that's a great thing because you get more ideas when you hear more voices, right? And I I do have to confess I was not easily uh, convinced to even try it. I was really skeptical, but uh, you probably know. Uh, uh, Giselle Oliver, who's our EMEA, EMEA mm-hmm. uh, director here. And uh, she talked to me about it for a long time before I said, hey, you know, maybe, maybe I'll try it because I was skeptical. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, but now that I see it, I'm now that I've been involved in it, I'm a I'm I'm a full uh, convert. Hey, and, and that's the I, thing about it. At least you gave yeah. it a try, you know. Right. And yep. then and it, and it's worked out, and yep. that's a good thing. So. I'm glad. It seems like you enjoy what you do and you do a good yeah. job at it. Um, I want to ask you, how did you end up in Michigan? Well, you know, I, I worked for uh, for uh, uh, General Motors. Mm -hmm. uh, and as you talked in the bio there, I, I had the opportunity to move around to different uh, places, primarily to get an opportunity for a higher uh, uh uh, position. Mm -hmm. So I had worked as I started at the Lordstown, Ohio plant. I went to Linden and, and this was all on the labor side, mm -hmm. uh, Linden, uh, New Jersey, then uh, Kansas City. So when I was in Kansas City, uh, I was over the uh, labor aspect of it, labor safety, etc. that side of it. Well, that plant closed. Mm. So, you know, we went through the whole closing process and people were looking for homes. And I was fortunate enough to get an assignment here in Lansing at, at the old uh, Oldsmobile headquarters. Mm -hmm. So that's what brought me to Michigan and, and brought me to Lansing. But as, as we talked about, or as you mentioned earlier, I went to undergraduate school at GMI, and that's in Flint. So yeah, I how did you get there? Like, time in Michigan. Did you, like, from Pennsylvania to look at that when you were, did you come, I guess, the first question, when you were younger? Like, when you yeah, were out I, of I high came, school? I came right out of high how school. How did you, like, notice, like, were because I'm saying that they got other schools in Pennsylvania. Sure. What yeah, drew that, you to that? That's a great question. And actually, uh, they were looking for... Uh, for increasing the uh, diversity. Mm -hmm. So there was a uh, recruiter that came to my high school. In fact, it was a friend of my family, and he was actually a member of my my grandfather's church. Okay. Uh, because, I, well, both of my grandfathers were pastors, but he, he was one. So, and, well, his name was Leon Ponder. So he came to the high school, and they were looking for... Uh, for uh, African um, Americans, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, I had the right, the right uh, background as right far because as, you that's not an science, easy science yeah. and, and math, and you know, it really sounded almost too good to be true because I was really concerned about things uh, economically. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a sister; my older sister was uh, she's a she's a couple years older than me, although she tries to say I'm older now but <laughs> anyways I'm not not getting into that but but my older sister was at she was in an undergrad at uh at uh Brown uh a university mm -hmm. uh and you know our family you know it was a kind of a struggle for her in fact my mother had gone back to work she had been a stay-at-home mom mom and then when it got time for us to, to start going to college. Uh, she went back to work. Mm. Uh, and so I was looking for, at, at a number of different things. And when this, you know, the thing about General Motor In Motors Institute, it was almost too good to be true because it was a co-op work study program where you would go to school for six weeks and then you would work for uh, for for six weeks all year round. Wow! There were only like three weeks off, and you would you were able to make enough money so that you could pay for your schooling and you know other thing. I was blessed to be able to to afford a car because wow. one of the things was when I was uh, in my work section, I was able to stay at home. Mm -hmm. So, so that really helped. So economically, it just made sense. And they uh, said that, you know, they guaranteed you a job after you uh, graduated. Okay. It was a, it was a five-year program uh, with a thesis at the end. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I really latched onto it for, for economic reasons, mm -hmm. uh, but, but it was a great program and they had the engineering 
side, and then they had the industrial administration was the other option. Right. And I didn't know much about engineering, but I just saw more like drawing on boards and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I said, I'm not really that interested in that, but I would really like, I like the idea of leading and managing people and getting into the business side. So that's what I, that's kind of how I arrived there. That's how I said, hey, I would like to, 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 to go to GMI. And this came about really near the end of my senior year because I was planning to go to uh, Washington University in, in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. But so I had never even been to the campus. Right. But I just said, yeah, it sounds like a, like a good thing. And as yeah. we just said earlier, kind of the, the rest is history. Right. Yeah, it yeah. worked out for sure. Yeah. So this question, I'm kind of going to, um, I want to ask you a little bit about your hobbies, but I want to ask this question because I know you really don't have any, uh, what they say, meat in the game or whatever. Uh, go green or go blue? Oh, definitely go green. Okay. I good. mean, no, no, no question. Now, uh, well, you know, my wife, yes. uh, Viola, who uh -huh. has two, uh, uh, degrees from MSU. Okay. My son went to MSU, but even further back than that, when I grew up in my hometown in in Farrell, Pennsylvania, uh, one of uh, one of the basketball stars. I mean, basketball was was the big sport. Mm -hmm. uh, we had teams that won like seven championships over know, about twenty years. Uh, but in any event, uh, there was a, a player who came to Michigan State. His name was uh, Julius McCoy. So I'd heard about Michigan State, and I knew Michigan State was one of the first uh, major colleges to have African-American athletes. Yeah. So I knew about Michigan State, so I was always positive toward it. So, And then when I moved here, and like I said, my wife and my, and, and my son graduated from there, I, I will admit that my daughter was kind of a, she was away from the mainstream. She went to the place down in, in uh, Ann Arbor. Okay. But, but but we still love her. That's right. That's uh, right. That's no, a, it's no, a good seriously. school. Yep, yep. It is a good school. So uh, we had that little friction <laughs> in the family. But I, I will just uh, mention one quick story about that because I mentioned my, my wife is a Spartan and my daughter decided to go to U of M. So we will go down there for their graduate, for their uh, orientation, uh -huh. you know, when they take parents to all this stuff. And we listen to it. I mean, it's a great school. I mean, they're, you know, uh, but I, I definitely like to go green than, than go blue. But in any event, at the very end of the orientation, we were down there for a day. We took the tour and all that stuff. The, they're in the auditorium. And then they uh, start playing the Michigan fight song and they stand up and start singing. So, you know, I take my cues from, from, uh, from uh, Viola. Yeah. <laughs> So I kind of looked at her. She looked at me. She said, I'm going to stand, but I ain't singing. <laughs> I said, I'm with you. That's so, man, right. right. We're going to support our child, right. but we're not going yeah. too far right. for sure. Well, yeah. I I love that. I'm glad to hear it. Um, I just wanted to ask you, because I know this is a really important part. You are part of uh, a member of Phi Beta Sigma yes. fraternity. But you also, you do volunteering as well, and you do in a lot of sure. different organizations. Yep. If you wouldn't mind taking a couple of moments just talking about some of the things that you're doing outside of your work and, okay. and you know, pleasure. Sure. sure. One of the things, one of my passions really is I, my church. I'm a member of the West Lansing uh, Church of God, and my, my faith is a, just a big part of my life. So one of my passions there is I teach the adult Sunday school class. Mm -hmm. I've been doing that since I don't know 2006 maybe, and and I and I really enjoy it. Uh, just uh, preparing the uh, lesson so it uh, requires that I that I study the word and the lesson, mm -hmm. and we've got uh, well our our pastor sits in the class and. We have some people that are very knowledgeable, so they keep me on my toes. Right. But but it's it's, it's really a good process. Uh, I also serve as a as a trustee, and also uh, 
uh, singing a choir. That's one of the things I really miss from the pandemic because we haven't gone back. Got you. We, we've gone back to live services, but we haven't gone back to the choir mm-hmm. singing. And I just, I can't sing, but I enjoy that, that whole process. Right. I enjoyed, I really enjoyed the practices maybe more yeah. than the singing and the, the fellowship, et cetera. So, yeah, serving there. Uh, we also have uh, uh, Vacation Bible School. In fact, I'm going to uh, help out with that. That's next week. Gotcha. Uh, and uh, we've got a backpack giveaway that we're going to do. I think it's, I'm not going to be able to participate in it because it's this Friday mm-hmm. and I'm going to be out of town. But those are the things that, that are really, you know, I, I really am and enjoy my my church family. Mm-hmm. And they, they put up with me, uh, <laughs> which is uh, a great thing. And I enjoy those, those, uh, uh, those interactions and, and that fellowship, seeing the young people in the church grow up uh, and just, just, uh, interacting because there's just some really, really great people there. So that's, uh, that's a big area. And, and you mentioned, uh, Phi Beta Sigma, uh, our, our signature event is we do a youth workshop Mm -hmm. where we have, uh, high school, uh, students come in, uh, and when we do a program, it's in, February, we usually have a speaker, and uh, uh, that's that's a a big event. We have high school students from all over the the area, and I actually had the privilege to to lead those workshops for about I think I did it for about seven years. Uh, we also have a foundation which we call our, our education fund. Mm-hmm. And we, the education fund funds that workshop. They also, we also provide scholarships to high school students as well as, as, uh, as college students. Uh, so those are some of the things that the, uh, that Phi Beta Sigma does. It, it really, uh, what drew me to it is that whole service aspect. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and the uh, volunteering. It seems like you you do that. I, I saw that throughout your bio and different things that you like volunteering and like giving back into the community. And so I did want to highlight that. Unfortunately, our time is up, James. I can okay. talk to you all day. You, well, um, thank you. give uh, really good, informative answers, and I'm glad that we got a chance to learn about you today. So well, thank you. Thank you for coming. All right. All right, everybody. Uh, I'm going to see you soon. Thanks and take care. You've been listening to Who's That Star? I'm Lisa A., and you can listen to this episode of Who's That Star and other shows from LCC Connect anytime online at lccconnect.org. Thank you for listening. Catch me next time to find out Who's That Star? This is LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. For service members ready to make their transition into a civilian career, Lansing Community College helps veterans navigate their educational path with the option to earn college credits for military experience in related fields, personalized support from confidential counseling to help find VA benefits, and fast-track programs in information technology and medical specialties. To find out how, visit lcc.edu and search military credit. I'm Ben Affleck, and I want to thank you for joining me and supporting Paralyzed Veterans of America. I just don't think my family would be as happy as they are without the support that I received from Paralyzed Veterans of America. Go to pva.org to learn more. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. From Lansing Community College, this is LCC Connect, and this is Land Stories, with me, David Seawick. Each episode explores a different topic, such as the people, business, neighborhoods, communities, buildings, and other phenomena that make up the history of our college and our region. We tell stories, 
and in doing so, we connect the past to the present. We begin this episode of Land Stories with a correction. In the episode that discussed the creation of Lansing Community College's downtown campus and the construction of Dart Auditorium, I had mentioned that there was a house on Lansing Community College's campus called the Turner House and that it had been demolished in the close proximity of time in which Dart Auditorium was built, which is around 1980. But that was incorrect, and I want to thank my colleague Rob Edwards for pointing out my error. The building that is in question, the Turner House, actually stood for quite a bit longer than that. It was not torn down until sometime in the early part of the first decade of this century. So that would be the early 2000s. And again, thank you very much, Rob, for correcting me on my error. And if any of you ever have... A correction, question, comment, concern, feel free to get a hold of me. My contact details are on the webpage, lccconnect.org, where you can find past episodes of this program, plus all of the others that we produce here as part of the LCC Connect series. The idea of memory, therefore and why some people remember one thing one way, remember one thing the other, or why certain people think they know something about a historical event, a historical person, a historical phenomenon, and when it turns out, well, actually, this story is a little bit different than what they initially thought. That is the theme of this episode of Land Stories. And to begin that exploration of that idea, we are going to take another little stroll around downtown Lansing. For those of you that have listened to past episodes, you know that we like to take strolls around Lansing on this program, and we are going to do that. Our stroll today is going to take us not very far from Lansing Community College's campus. We're going to walk just a couple blocks to the south down Capitol Avenue, and we're going to stand in front of the beautiful Michigan Capitol building we're going to walk up the sidewalk that takes us to the main entrance of the building, but we're not going to go into that building. We're going to stop. We're going to stop because we are going to encounter a statue. A statue of a man by the name of Austin Blair. There are many monuments and statues on the Capitol lawn, but actually there's only one that is of an actual person, meaning... The other statues or monuments are representative of certain events, uh, groups of people. Many of them are war monuments, actually. Many of them are Civil War-era monuments. And in fact, the state capitol building itself is, in many ways, a gigantic monument, a living monument, a working monument to Michigan's contribution to the Union during the Civil War. And it is that war, the Civil War, that brings us to the man that we're looking at on top of a pedestal. That man is Austin Blair. And Austin Blair has the distinction of being the only person with a statue honoring him on the Michigan Capitol lawn for a very good reason. And that reason is indeed because of his contributions to the preservation of the Union during the Civil War. But our look at Austin Blair gives us an opportunity, therefore, to also consider the concept of historical memory, to look at why certain things are remembered or forgotten in the way they are. And I didn't realize it at the time, but as it turns out, somewhere deep in the caverns of my mind's filing system, I believe the inspiration for this episode came many years ago. It is probably not going to surprise any of you out there if I told you that I saw something on social media and that sparked an idea in my mind. Here's what I saw on social media. I saw Confederate flags in the back of people's pickup trucks who were parked at or about Austin Blair Park in Jackson. And this was several years ago. And it was a rally that took place around about the time, actually, of the summer 
that, not too far from there, many years earlier, the Republican Party was founded. And Austin Blair had a role to play in the Republican Party. I'm going to discuss that in a moment. It was a very important role. He's actually one of the founders of the Republican Party. And, as I will also discuss momentarily, that party had its founding at a meeting in Jackson, Michigan on the 6th of July in 1854. So, why then would a park bearing the name of one of the people who truly did keep the United States together during that terrible civil war that killed hundreds of thousands of Americans, a war that, in Austin Blair's own words, was fought over what he called the vilest crime in existence, slavery, have a rally in the 21st century of people bearing a banner that, while not the state banner of the Confederacy, nonetheless has, through the years, come to define in popular culture nowadays the side that, well, lost the Civil War and, indeed, tried to break the Union apart. That brings to mind historical memory. And historical memory is something that, on the sounds of it, it sounds like, what the heck is he talking about with historical memory? How can somebody remember something historically if he or she did not live through that event? Ah, that is the distinction, really, of what we mean by historical memory compared to memory. So, I have memory. You have memory. I have memory of being in Jackson, Michigan. I've been there many times, actually. Uh, having grown up in the southern part of Michigan, Jackson was not that far of a drive from where I grew up, over by Kalamazoo. And so I've been there many times, and I've even been to the park that the meeting of the Republican Party was held in 1854 that I referenced only moments ago. And I had that memory, because I've been there before. But I also have, in my mind, what one might call the collective memory of a nation. And the collective memory of the American nation is something that we inherit through our schools, through our parents, our grandparents, our older siblings, our aunts and uncles, our cousins, our best friends, our work colleagues, the news media that we consume, the podcasts we listen to, the radio programs that we enjoy. Through all of those transmissions of knowledge, we end up forming an idea of the past. Whether we realize it or not, most of that programming, most of that information that we receive has a historical component to it. If you take the word history out of it, it actually seems quite obvious. For example, how do you know if you haven't filled your car up with gasoline in a few weeks that the price of gas is four and a half or five dollars a gallon? Well, because probably somebody told you, or you drove down the road and you saw the sign outside of a gas station that read 479 or 489 or 529, depending on how recently you filled up. And that's information that's transmitted to you. You drive by that same gas station six months from now, and maybe gas is $6.99 a gallon. Maybe it's $2.99 a gallon. And you remember back to six months prior when it was $4.89 a gallon. And you have a memory of what happened. And you can talk to other people about it, and you can all sit around and chat about the price of gas, where it's been, where it's going, and you are engaging in an episode of historical memory. Now think about issues that come and go, but also think about events that happen to a nation that exist over an extended period of time and develop over extended periods of time to the point where the collective body politic experiences those events. And everybody experiences them differently because all of us have our own perception of the events going on around us. But there's enough sharing of knowledge that 
as we experience these events together and they become part of our culture, they become part of our mindset, we develop a concept of nationhood. We identify with certain themes, with certain ideas, with certain people. And as the nation develops historically, over time, we pass these ideas on to all the relationships that I mentioned only moments ago. So this all indeed is a bit of an endeavor into postmodern historical theory, which is something that was quite prominent in the 1960s and 70s especially, but we won't go too far down that road, not on this episode, maybe in a later date. For now, I want us to think about that idea of historical memory, and in doing so, let's get back for just a moment to the Confederate flags flying high there at Austin Blair Park in Jackson, Michigan, a few years ago. How do we get to the point where a park that is named in honor of one of the men who, well, worked hard, as an understatement, to preserve the Union... Actually, he staked his entire political career on it. We're going to talk about that here momentarily. And indeed, lived through an event that killed hundreds of thousands of people. It is absolutely impossible, really, to adequately uh, explain, I think, now, the really what the Civil War meant to the people that lived through it and, of course, the people that didn't survive through it. The best description I think I can have you read is from an absolutely outstanding book that was published a few years ago by a historian. Her name is Drew Gilpin Faust, and the book is called This Republic of Suffering. And if any of you have ever seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, it has often been remarked that the opening scene of that movie is one of the more accurate uh, depictions on film of what it was like to be part of that operation during the Second World War. It's a very riveting piece of film, and quite frankly, it's, it's difficult to watch, actually, when you try to put your mind uh, into the people who actually lived through that event, and many of us myself included, certainly know people that are new, unfortunately now many of them have passed away, but new people that, that did indeed live through that event. The first chapter of the book, This Republic of Suffering, is very much a literary accomplishment of a similar magnitude in terms of really getting to the heart of what the Civil War was like in the sheer violence and horror of those who lived through it. So how do we get then to the early part of the 2010s? And all of that horror, all of that destruction that was the attempt at dismantling the United States, how do we get to the point where people probably with little if any knowledge of what the Confederate flag, as we call it nowadays, actually stood for. How do we get to the point where they're flying that on a park named after the governor of Michigan, one of the founders of the Republican Party, whose raison d'etre during the time was to preserve the Union and prevent the very cause that that flag stood for from destroying that Union? We're going to get to as far as we can uh, in answering that question. And I want to keep this in mind as we're, we're exploring the idea of memory. So let's span the decades. We're actually going to span the centuries now. And let's go back to the beginning of Austin Blair's life. And it starts not far actually from a place in New York that made its appearance on Land Stories just a few episodes ago. Uh, for those of you who 
our faithful listeners to this program, you will remember a few episodes ago we discussed who Lansing's named after. And Lansing, as it turns out, is named after a gentleman by the name of John Lansing Jr. because Lansing, Michigan is named after Lansing, New York, which is named after John Lansing Jr. And go back and listen to that episode of Land Stories, and you will be fascinated to learn all of the connections that Michigan has with the state of New York in the 19th century. And as it turns out, Austin Blair is another one. He is another individual that we can trace back to the state of New York. Blair was born in Caroline, New York. Caroline is a tiny little town along the way to Ithaca, and it's only about 20 miles actually from Lansing, New York. So we're in upstate New York, as the region's called now, not far from the Finger Lakes region. And in 1818, on the 18th of February, actually, Austin Blair was born in Caroline, New York. He grew up in New York, studied law, was admitted to the New York bar, and then, like many people from New York, he ended up moving to Michigan. Michigan was one of the most sought-after places to move in the United States in the 1830s, the 1840s. And there are a lot of reasons for that. We had lots of good agricultural land here. Michigan was deemed to have a very favorable climate compared to other parts of the country at the time. And, of course... Michigan had a very ample supply of water. The very same reasons why, in the year 2022, people still find Michigan to be a very useful place to live. So Austin Blair moves here in 1841. And in 1841, he enters politics. He first is elected as the clerk of Eaton County. And then he ends up moving to Jackson, and from there, he gets elected to the State House in 1845. In 1848, he is a delegate to the Free Soil National Convention in Buffalo. And the Free Soil National Convention was called so because this was the Free Soil Party. And we're going to have to take a little bit of a turn away from the biography of Austin Blair to look at the politics he was becoming a very important part of at the time. And that political movement that the Free Soil Party and others that popped up beginning in the 1840s and especially in the 1850s was part of the political realignment that the United States was undergoing at the time. The Free Soil Party as its name would suggest, was a party that was formed over opposing the expansion of slavery. Free soil referring to the idea that as the United States expanded territorially westward, those territories would be free of slavery when they became states uh, admitted to the Union. And the Free Soil Party really formed um, as a result of the Mexican-American War all of the issues that propped up during and after that war uh, involving the territory expansion of the United States, slavery being a huge one, and ultimately the inability of the Whig Party to remain united over whether or not they would oppose slavery's expansion or would agree to what was known as popular sovereignty at the time, which was the idea that people that were moving into the new territories would be able to decide uh, through elections whether or not slavery would be allowed to expand or not. The Free Soil Party didn't last very long, and ultimately many of those like Blair who were involved in the early formation of the Free Soil Party ended up forming the Republican Party. And we'll turn our story now back to Austin Blair because it is really that moment that he is going to become very prominent, not only in Michigan politics, but national politics. So Blair is elected to the Michigan State Senate in 1854, and that same year, on the 6th of July of 1854, 
what I mentioned here a few moments ago, the first Republican Party convention takes place. Convention eh, may be a little bit of a stretch of the word. It was a meeting held in Jackson, Jackson, Michigan, where Blair was living at the time. And that meeting consisted of men such as Blair, where they formed a party that would formally take a stand opposing the expansion of slavery, but also, and a lot of people forget this about the Republican Party, would tie in their opposition to the expansion of slavery with what was at the time deemed a very uh, progressive, and some might even say activist, economic policy in regards to the role that the government would play in what they believed was fostering economic growth. So the Republican Party is definitely a party that is founded over the issue of slavery. It is very, very, very important, though, to note that the Republican Party's official stance was anti-slavery. It was not abolition. And that is not a technicality of word usage. The two were very different. Those that were abolitionists, as the name suggests, wanted to abolish slavery immediately and permanently, wherever it existed, and they wanted to do so by, well, in some cases, to quote a much later American historical figure, any means necessary. The anti-slavery stance, which is actually what the majority of the people that were opposed to the expansion of slavery believed in, was actually as much an economic argument as it was a moral argument. Anti-slavery folks believed that slavery was an economically backward system. Many anti-slavery people also agreed with the abolitionists that it was a morally corrupt system. And being a combination of the two, anti-slavery people believed that the growth and progress and prosperity of the United States would forever be slowed by the existence of slavery. But they also recognized that much of the American economy was dependent upon slavery, both South and North. And they also recognized that the union of the American states would absolutely be threatened should slavery be abolished immediately or it proposed to be abolished immediately because many of the folks who were in politics at the time, of course, many of the prominent businessmen in America, they owned slaves. So the anti-slavery folks had the stance that if slavery were prevented from expanding further, it would die a natural death, and in doing so, would allow the United States to rid itself of this economically backward and morally corrupt institution, and thereby, in the minds of the anti-slavery folks, this was a way that the U.S. could accomplish the end of slavery without tearing the nation apart. Now, as it turns out, though, the anti-slavery stance was deemed by many Americans, North and South, to be an extremist stance. I think it goes without saying that Southerners who were slave owners would believe that, but it may be surprising to hear that there were a fair amount of Northerners, too, who believed that the anti-slavery stance was too radical. And... A lot of those folks instead adopted the idea that Lewis Cass, for example, a prominent Michigander from this era, professed, and that was the idea of popular sovereignty, which I mentioned a moment ago. The idea that as the nation expanded, the issue of slavery could be resolved by having the people who moved into the newly acquired territories decide for themselves through election whether or not slavery would exist. And that turned out to be viewed as the ultimate compromise position. Now, ultimately, though, the 
politics of the United States became polarized greatly over the issue of slavery. No uh, single stance was deemed to be sufficiently acceptable to all regions of the United States. Those who were abolitionists believed that it was a moral wrong and slavery had to be done away with immediately. They were a minority, but they were a very powerful minority in some parts of the country. The anti-slavery folks, men like Austin Blair, who eventually formed into the Republican Party, believed that the economic backwardness of slavery, combined with its moral corruption, deemed it to be an institution that needed to be done away with, but in a manner which did not harm the Union. And then the popular sovereignty folks believed this was an issue that could be voted away, and then those from the South, who are slaveholders, as well as some people from the North, too, um, believed that slavery needed to be allowed to persist. It was a states' rights issue. It was also, in their words, a moral issue. Very hard for us nowadays to even, I think, imagine that there were those who would argue that slavery was a morally wholesome and even necessary institution. Whether or not they believed that in between their own ears, there were certainly folks who did publicly profess such a stance. And that's the background thereby which the meeting in 1854 took place. And the formation of the Republican Party is one of these extremely important events in American history that has been remembered collectively in a variety of ways, um, some not so uh, serious, for example. Uh, the town of Racine, Wisconsin, also had one of the very first meetings of the organization of the party that became known as the Republicans, and they claimed themselves to be the home of the Republican Party, just as Jackson, Michigan does, as the organization there that took place in 1854. Some of the historical memory of the Republican Party, of course, is much more serious because it is tied so deeply into this absolutely cataclysmic event that eventually happens in the United States, and that would be the Civil War. Austin Blair, then, features prominently in national Republican Party politics and, of course, state Republican Party politics, statewide leadership, national leadership, from really that point in 1854 on, when he begins his prominent role in the formation of the National Republican Party. And that's where we're going to leave off with this episode. Next episode of Land Stories, we will pick up here with our story of Austin Blair, and we are going to examine what happens next not only in the formation of the Republican Party, but, of course, in Austin Blair's life. And as it turns out, that statue that stands in front of the Michigan Capitol building that we begin our exploration of Blair with at the beginning of this episode has quite the story to tell behind the man it depicts. You've been listening to Land Stories with me, David Seawick. For more information on this program and to stream past episodes, visit lccconnect.org. LCC Connect is the official home of the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College, offering hours of original and exciting programming. Hosted by faculty, staff, and community members, LCC Connect explores our college's work in the community, important topics in higher education, and our vision for the future. Catch the vibe on 89.7 FM or online at lccconnect.org. Until next time, remember, keep telling good stories. This is WLNZ Lansing. You're listening to LCC Connect. 
a weekly program that features the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College. To find out more about LCC Connect programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision.